welcome back, everyone. We're so glad to be here with you today. And um, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Colossians. Um, the series title is this idea of Colossians and just looking at um, just lessons from house arrest. Listening from Paul, uh, who was a follower of Jesus, who uh, wrote the entire book of Colossians from house arrest, from a jail um, inside Rome. And so we're just looking at some of the things that he taught that out of a house arrest situation, what are the lessons he wanted us to learn? And so we who are in a self-quarantine or a shelter in place or in some ways house arrest, what are lessons that uh, we might be able to learn from this book written a couple thousand years ago? And so um, I know for some of you, you are probably, uh, we probably have a range of emotions. We, we've kind of had a lot of time to maybe not fully adjust, but at least get an idea of what a new normal, uh, if you could call it that, what that looks like. And so now that we've kind of been through that for, you know, for several weeks, some of us uh, over a month now, we look at how we might be feeling certain things. You might be feeling um, kind of like our world is really small. The idea that maybe our world consists of our home, um, the grocery store, uh, some people are still able to go into work. And so just recognizing that, that the world is much smaller than we remember it being and, and what it felt like. And just thinking about what, would it, what will it be like when we're able to go to the beach and to see the ocean again and how big it is and to be able to go on hikes and experience nature and, and mountains and be able to just expand our world. Maybe for some of you, your world just feels small. It feels like, not that you're in a cell like prison, but it feels small to you. Maybe for some of you, you feel kind of helpless and, and you know that staying at home is a good idea and washing your hands and wearing masks as you go out in public, taking care of those things are, are important and we need to do that. But besides that, you're just kind of waiting or not sure what's going on. And so just kind of a helpless feeling when we're used to being able to fix things and work on stuff and that's just not happening right now. Maybe for some of you, you're feeling helpless. And maybe for some, you're feeling a little bit lonely. Just this idea of, you know, we're either around people, but we're not really connecting with people. So we might be around family members, but we're still struggling relationally. Or maybe we don't have a lot of people with us right now. And so we're trying to long for that. And, and as much as it's great to see one another's faces through FaceTime or Skype or Zoom and, and to be able to share with you online, you know, it's, it definitely isn't the exact same thing. It's better than nothing, for sure. I'm grateful that this didn't happen, you know, 20 years ago before we had, uh, you know, the technology to be able to do this. But being able to have the technology doesn't mean it's the same as being in person. And so as we think about different ways that we might be feeling, whether it's just our world is smaller, whether it's helpless, whether it's the idea of feeling lonely, whether it's angry, whether it's sad, anxious, whatever it might be. Um, whatever you're feeling, I want to just encourage you today that as we are going to be in a sermon just called Ready, Willing, and Able, talking about Jesus and how he's ready, willing, and able to meet us where we are. Our main point today is this idea that however, no matter how you are feeling, Jesus is ready, willing, and able to meet you there. No matter how you're feeling, he's ready, willing, and able to meet you there. I want to jump right into the passage. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And again, as a reminder, this, this passage was written to the church of Colossae, and, and there started to be some, um, some questions about who Jesus was there. And it's an early church, it's a house church, and uh, there started to be some people who were questioning theology and, and different heresies, different false beliefs that were starting to take root. And one of those was the idea that Jesus was um, just, uh, he was created. He wasn't God, he was just 
someone who was created and he was just really important. And so Paul takes this section, verses 15 through 23, and as he does that, um, there's scholars who look at especially verses 15 through 20 and look at it as this looks like it's structured and written as if it was an early hymn, um, an early uh, a song that was singing praise about who Jesus was, his character, his identity as divine, as being fully God, and yet also being fully man and taking upon our sin. And so as we look at this, I want to kind of have that in mind as we get ready to read. And as we get ready to start, I just want to have our first point before we start looking at verse 15, that we looked at how Jesus is ready, willing, and able to be able to meet us where we are. And we're going to take that ready, willing, and able. We're going to go backwards today. So we're going to start at first looking at how Jesus is able to do much more than we can fathom. He's able to do much more than we can fathom. Let's look at the scripture together, starting in verse 15. The Son, referring to Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." That through this passage we see in this, these first few verses, there's no question that Jesus is God. That many people we hear about, you know, they think, oh, Jesus is a good moral teacher. He was a wise man. He was, he was very good at things. He was a good philosopher. But this shows us as, as we look at the scripture and we believe, I believe that God's word is God breathed. That it is, um, it is designed for correction and encouragement and reproof. And so looking at this God-breathed scripture from Paul written 2,000 years ago, looking at how the Son is the image of God, image being, he's his representation. He gives us the perfect image, the perfect picture of what God looks like. And, and I don't mean like his hair length or his beard or anything. I just mean the character of God is embodied perfectly through Jesus. His love, his, the fact that he spoke truth. The fact that he wanted to serve people and care for people, but also the fact that he got mad when people wouldn't follow or would create barriers between those who know, want to know God better and don't. We see that he was the firstborn over all creation. And again, here's part of where that confusion might come. Is, is Paul saying that Jesus was the first of all the created things? That Jesus is just number one in line? And the answer to that is no. Is that the word firstborn isn't necessarily talking about um, a sequential order. What it's talking about is a place or, or excuse me, a um, area of priority. So it's not about order, first in line, firstborn. It's the priority. It's the one who has the head of the household. And it goes from this Hebrew word or this Greek idea of primogeniture, primogeniture, which means the firstborn son is the one who inherits everything. It's the one who uh, we see and the prodigal son, the passage that the older son wanted his, um, or sorry, the younger son wanted his inheritance, but the older son was the one that should have received the greater inheritance. So this idea that Jesus, he's the image of God, he manifests who God is in flesh by being fully God and fully human. And he's also the firstborn. He's the one who has everything under control. Richard Malik, who's a, um, writes the New American Commentary, he says that, Paul is stating in this section that Jesus is, quote, his father's representative and heir and has the management of the divine household. 
The idea that he oversees the divine household, which he specifically says in parentheses, which is all of creation. So he's the heir and he's the one who oversees the divine household, all of creation, which is committed to him. So that in and of itself is incredible how Jesus is fully God. But here's what we see here, starting in verse 18, the idea that we start to see that Jesus wasn't just, you know, watching creation take place uh, as God the Father is creating, as the Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters. It's not like Jesus is just hanging out and watching and wanting to, you know, get a good grade on the group project later. It's one of those where he is vitally important to this. In fact, verse 18, in him, all things were created and through him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then I love this when it says, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities. There's how many different ways can you say that any worldly or earthly definition of authority is underneath the feet of Christ? He has to say through uh, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. All of them are underneath God's, through the son of Jesus, God's son. It's all under his control, under his oversight. And that in of itself is, is incredible and in how all things have been created through him, through the power of Jesus and for him, that the end goal, the purpose of our creation or our existence is to be in right relationship with God through Jesus. And so Jesus is able to do much more than we can fathom because he didn't just come as a good man to die on a cross for our sins. He didn't even come as fully God, fully man, simply for the sake of our individual righteousness. Is that what happens? Absolutely. But that's not the be all end all of Jesus's mission, that all things were made through his power and all things were created for the purpose of being made right through him. And so he does way more. He is able and powerful to do so much more than we could even know. Now, I want to take a couple of moments to, to show some pictures here in a moment, because we, we see how all things were created, things in the heavens and in the earth. And so uh, John Piper talks about this idea, how uh, there's a difference between a, a telescope and a microscope, right? So a microscope makes small things look big. So it's, it, it, it does it in such a way that something that's tiny becomes big. A telescope makes big things able to be seen. The exact way that he puts it is that microscopes make a small thing look bigger and the telescope makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. So when we're talking about Jesus being the firstborn of creation who oversees creation and is part of the, the, all of that, I want to take a moment to just look at some of the things in space that show us how big and how vast and how powerful and able Jesus truly is. Because his role in creation reveals our need for scope. For scope, the idea of getting a fuller picture. And so we talk about telescope that makes big things able to be seen. And we talk about a microscope that makes small things big. We need to have a proper scope of who Jesus is and what he's done. Yes, he died for our sins. And yes, we have eternal life through him. But that's not the whole story because he created everything for the purpose of having life with him. So yes, he died for my sins and for yours. But he also created everything and brought everything under his authority. And he, through that, made everything for the purpose of relationship with him. And so we want to look here. This is a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, and so um, right now you can just kind of, it's hard to see, just kind of a, a mass of a bunch of stuff there. But um, 
I want to give a couple of uh, numbers here because everyone, whenever I start to think about space and I hear about it, um, it's pretty overwhelming. A lot of, just so you know, um, a lot of the content I'm about to share with you, I got from Louis Giglio's indescribable video. I think it's about 45 minutes to an hour. I'm not quite sure. It is well worth your time uh, to watch that at another point. But Louis Giglio indescribable video. Um, I got a lot of this information from there. So check it out. And the first thing I'm going to say is that this is uh, the Milky Way galaxy. And one light year, when we talk about something is light years away, that's not a measure of time. It's a measure of distance. It's a measure of how long would it take light to come here. Excuse me. So one light year is 5.88 trillion miles. 5.88 trillion miles. And the Milky Way, which is the galaxy that we, um, our solar system is in, is 100,000 light years. So again, 5.88 trillion miles is one light year. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. And so, and that is only one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. So when we say that Jesus created everything or that through him this was created and by him and for him, this is far more than the fact that he came to earth. Yes, he did that. And yes, that changes everything for our lives. But he was there in the beginning of all creation. And we see the power he had through Colossians 1. Now, if you can see that arrow, uh, that arrow points us to approximately where we are within the Milky Way galaxy, where our solar system is, and then where Earth is in the midst of that. So again, this is far bigger than we can even really fathom. Now, I want to show you this picture. This may not look like a picture to you. It's hard to see even when I'm right here. It's, there's a few lines down there. Um, what this is, is this is from uh, the Voyager uh, satellite, who um, they sent this out. And we got this in 1990. So this is a composite of 60 images and it's called the pale blue dot. And each of these, uh, this image is made of 640,000 pixels and each pixel took five and a half hours to transmit. So this is a huge, huge file. And even so looking at how big it is, you can see a couple of these like colored bands. If you can see they're very, very faintly. Um, those are reflections of the sun off of the Voyager, but in one of these bands, and we'll look at it right here, right here, it's, again, you can't even barely see it, um, is what they call uh, the pale blue dot. That tiny speck that you can barely even see. I'm right here and I can barely see it. You may not be able to see it at all, but just know right there is Earth. And Carl Sagan, who's an astronomer, he said this, um, he said this here, he said, we succeeded in taking th that picture, excuse me, I went too far, that picture from deep space. And if you look at it, you see a dot. He says, that's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. We're living out our lives on that tiny blue dot that is one planet in one solar system in one galaxy, that's hundreds of, or hundreds of billions of galaxies, and that's all that we know. And the power of who Jesus is, that he is able, that God, that Jesus who was part of creating all of this for the purpose of creation with him, he's bigger and able to handle all of our emotions, all that we're struggling with, all of whatever we're feeling. He is able to handle that because we see how powerful he truly is. But not only is he able, we also see that Jesus is willing. 
He's willing to do much more than we can know. That he's able to do more than we can fathom, and he's willing to do much more than we can know. Let's go to the scripture, verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I don't know if you caught that last part in verse 20. The fact that, well, verse 19, the fullness of God dwelled inside of Jesus. That word dwell harkens us back to the idea of tabernacling, of the presence of God. So in Exodus, when the people had a tabernacle that represented God's presence among them, that that word dwelling here in this, in verse 19 is how God dwelled within Jesus and Jesus came to dwell with us. But through Jesus's death, yes, he made a way for our sins to be forgiven so we could have eternal life with him. But it says here that he reconciled himself to all things, whether things on earth, which would be our lives and our sin and our need for the relationship with God, but also the things in heaven that Christ's sacrifice on the cross made peace with all of creation that Romans talks about how creation has would uh, um, like with pregnancy pains would would long for the fulfillment of creation and Jesus came and now there's still that longing that groaning is the word that Romans talks about that groaning for when Jesus will come back and for the fulfillment and the end purpose of right relationship with him but he is willing to do more than we can know. He didn't just come down to save us from our sin. He came down to make things right. That at the beginning there was creation and things were good. Then we had the fall and through our sin that we need redemption. And then once things have been redeemed, God can make all things new. He can restore all things. And I read recently that there's a difference between a two-step gospel or a four-step gospel. The two-step gospel is we have sin because of the fall. We need redemption because of Jesus. Those are still accurate. But the full picture is this idea of creation, that God loves us. And there's a purpose to be back in harmony and shalom and peace with all of creation. And the fall of man was not just a sin taking a bite from an apple. It was the idea of all things were thrown off from how they were created to be. And Jesus's redemption on the cross paid for our sins. And it also is allowing all things to be reconciled through him so that there can be restoration. So we talk about fall and redemption. Those are the two middle steps. Creations before that and restoration to make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth is the culmination of Christ's work. And so... We see here that in this uh, Richard Malik again, I referred to him earlier, he talks about this, that there's a new creation through Christ's death and that every aspect of creation that had been touched by sin will be touched by grace. To be clear, he says, this does not mean that every element affected by sin will be redeemed into a state of grace. In other words, it doesn't mean that um, someone who doesn't know Jesus will just automatically receive all that grace. But what it means is that every category of creation will be restored. It'll be back to how it was meant to be, how it was designed. And that those areas left in a state of sin will be put into the proper place before Christ. And so 
He's willing. Jesus is willing to do much more than we can know because he's came to bring creation back under redemption towards the step of restoration. But his role in our reconciliation displays his way to cope. So we talked about how, how we need to have a scope, how big Jesus is, is as the one who created everything and how him and the Father and the Holy Spirit as God created everything. But now we need to remember the way that Jesus sought to cope with our sin, with the fall that causes us to be separated from a loving God. And it is through this reconciliation we have new life, but the way that ha- that ha- can happen is that the same God who had to come and created everything, fully God, Jesus, is the image of the visible God. He had to come down and to become fully man. And so it's the, it's the miracle of the incarnation that C.S. Lewis talks about that miracle as, quote, the grand miracle. And here's why. He explains in his book, Miracles. Uh, we'll read a couple of quotations together now. C.S. Lewis says, By a miracle that passes human comprehension, the creator, the one that we just saw with all the galaxies and all the heavens and all the parts of the earth, that creator entered his creation. The eternal entered time. God became human in order to die and rise again for the salvation of all people. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still into the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. Jesus did, is more able to handle more than we can even fathom. And he's willing to go all the way down into creation, to leave the throne room of heaven, to go to the rags of a manger, so that you and I would be able to experience eternal life by trusting in him, believing in him, confessing with our mouths, and believing in our hearts that he's Lord. That he truly is the one that we sang about earlier, that he's, his name is beautiful and wonderful and powerful, the name of Jesus. C.S. Lewis continues on. He says that the central miracle, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, the one how incarnation, you, have you had carne asada, carne asada fries perhaps, or carne asada burritos, or also I'm just hungry, so I'm talking about carne asada a lot. But carne means mate or flesh, right? So incarnation is literally the miracle of God coming into flesh. And so the incarnation is the central miracle. Why? As C.S. Lewis says, every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. That it is the culmination of creation and then reconciliation that Jesus coming and dying on the cross saves us from our sins and it allows for things to one day be set right. That Isaiah talks about, that the line will someday lay down with the land, that our swords will be beat down into plowshares, that the day of the Lord will allow those who are far from God to be brought near because that's how it was meant to be. And when Jesus came, yes, he absolutely came to save us from the weight of our sins that we could have eternal life. But he came to make that which was wrong right, that which is sad 
to be joyful again. That which is broken to be fixed. That which is hurting to be healed. So whatever it is that you are feeling today, Jesus is ready, willing, and able to meet you where you are this morning. And I mentioned in this point that it's Jesus's way to cope. He, he saw the problem of our sin and he knew he had to cope with it. There's the scope of how big he is and how he coped with our sin. And the way he did that is to be able to take upon all the sinfulness and to become that sacrifice, to make a way where there was no way. And the word cope, it comes from a Greek word. Um, let me make sure I say it right. Cloophos, uh, cloophos. I don't know. I don't speak Greek. I just read it off a page. Um, but the idea there is to come to blows. So in other words, it's a fight. It's, it's a fight to process. It's a fight to navigate. It's a fight that when we're right now fighting or feeling lonely, it's a fight to make sure that we reach out and connect with people. If we're in a season where we're feeling helpless, it's a fight to be able to do what we can and to lean on God to fight our battles for us. As Exodus 15 says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That if we're feeling like our world is small, it's a fight to not be bitter about that. We have to cope with it. And Jesus did not come to peaceably just make things well. He had to fight for our sin to be redeemed. He had to fight for us to be reconciled. This, this idea of two different sides to be brought back together, how they were originally meant to be. That God and people, we were meant to have unity. But because of the sin and because of the fall, we, we lost that. But he made a way where there was no way. He bridged a gap and he reconciled two separate parties into right relationship through his death on the cross and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we recognize that we need scope to recognize his creation allows us to have a proper scope. And we need to learn how to see how Jesus coped with our sin by dying on the cross. But there's one more thing that Jesus isn't just able because he's all powerful and mighty and creator. It's not just that he's willing, although he is, to die a horrible death, but to be raised to new life, to give us eternal life and to make wrong things right. But also he is ready. And he's ready to love you more than you can understand. He, he's already done the sacrifice. He already made that. And he's ready. He's standing at the door and knocking. And he's ready to welcome you into that relationship. He's ready to love you and, and to see past the masks that you put on. To see past the, the wounds that you hide behind. To see past the struggles that have defined you. And to see past those things which have, you have found your identity in. Those hurts, habits, hangups, and struggles. He sees past that and he wants to love you as you are. Not for you to wait until things are better and not for you to get things right before going to him, but in your brokenness, in the, the muck and the mire and the filth and the shame and the sadness, the difficulty and the heartache to bring that to him because a sacrifice of a contrite heart pleases him. A broken sacrifice of just, this is all we have, is all we can give. And we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until he's all we have. See, verse 21 through 23, the first 15 through 20, as I referred to in the beginning of the passage, that says the idea of um, who Jesus is, that he is one who's creator and he's redeemer, reconciler. 
and the, the, the um, excuse me, it changes. Paul changes who he's speaking to. He's, he's talking to everyone. He uses the tense he, talking about Jesus. But then in verse 21 through 23, notice how even here, I went from we statements to he's ready to love you, to the second person, to directly to you, because that's what he does here in verse 21. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. See, he's ready to love you more than you can even possibly understand. That if some of this verbiage, for those of us who may have gone to church for a while, or this just sounds familiar with uh, writings from Paul, when he starts to talk about how Jesus' physical body through his death presents his people as a holy sacrifice, as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, that idea of holy means completely set apart. The idea of being without blemish means perfectly clean and we're not clean when we go to him, but when we go to him, he can clean us and cleanse us. This verbiage will tie us back to Ephesians 5 and, and the idea of Christ as a husband who loves his bride, loves the church as his bride, and, and how husbands are called to, to sacrifice, to love their wives, to sacrifice for them, to wash them with the water of the word, to present them as holy before God, that Jesus is tying in this language of a bride and a groom and his love for us is beyond what we could even know. That I read Francis Chan and Lisa Chan wrote a book together called You and Me Forever. And, and Steph and I read that. And it's a great book about marriage. And it's not necessarily what you think. Um, it's, it's really fantastic, though. I recommend it. In fact, I think we have it. Um, it might be available on Right Now Media. I don't know. I'll have to look at that later. But um, part of that is Francis Chan, he talks about how as someone who does weddings, and I've experienced this too, is I have the honor of being able to be up there with a the groom when he sees his bride for the first time. And Francis, in his story, he shares about how sometimes you might hear like an audible, like, wow. And, and he says, think about that. That's how Jesus sees you. Well, let me show you um, a picture from our wedding day, um, a couple pictures, actually, of what it was like uh, when I first saw Steph walking down the aisle. So the first one here is um, her father's there, and, and there are going to be a couple times where eyes aren't open, like either Steph's or her dad's or people in the background. Don't worry about that. Like, not in a mean way, but just look at me right now. But <laughs> look at my face at first, right? My first part is like, just, I'm so happy, right? I'm like, oh man, this is really here. I'm excited to, to marry her. This next picture is the like, I'm looking at the pastor and I'm like, that's my, wait, do I really get to marry her face? Like, this is really happening and I get to be able to, to, to commit. And so um, I'm super excited. And this one, uh, the next one is the one where as a pastor who teaches, I know you guys all do this all the time, right? But it's like the... Um, Oh man, don't tell me it's not working now. I'd be so sad if it's not working now. Um, let me see if I can just adjust this really quickly. So the next one is this idea of looking at um, what it looks like when I'm trying to listen to what someone's saying. Like I'm trying to listen to him, but if you notice, my eyes are just right on Steph, right? And so I know, like right now, I can't see your eyes. So you might be like looking at something else. I, I won't know the difference, but... When you're in person and you're like, 
trying to steal a glance. And so it's this amazing moment where this is before Steph and I, you know, were able to say our vows to one another and exchange communion, exchange rings. But that kind of look of like, oh my gosh, the love that a groom has for his bride and sees the bride walking down the aisle. That's, that's a picture of how much Jesus loves you. And when we confess and give our lives to Jesus and we become part of his church, we become the bride of Christ. And he sees us and he knows we're not perfect. But he knows that he lays down his life for us. He makes us holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. And he looks at us and doesn't look at our imperfections. He looks at us and says, wow, I love my bride. I love the church. That's how much she loves you. So we've looked at his role in creation and how his creation provides us with scope. We look at his role in reconciliation and then how that helps us to see how he copes with our sin. And the last point in your notes is that his role in our liberation is provides our call to hope. That it says here that if we continue, or sorry, we are free from accusation. If we continue in our faith established and firm and we do not move from that hope held out in the gospel, that this is the gospel that we've heard and has been proclaimed to every creature that we are now free from accusation. We are free when we are made right in Christ. We are free not to do what we want. There's two freedoms, right? The freedom to do what we want to do, which is the freedom like maybe we're all at home now and so we just want to eat candy all day because no one's going to tell us otherwise, right? So there's freedom to do what we want to do, but then there's a the freedom to do what we should do and we know is right and what is good and what is pleasing and what is perfect. And so we are free to choose a right relationship with God because Jesus has liberated us. He's creator, he's redeemer and reconciler, and he's liberator to redeem us from our sin. Now, I just want to close with a final image, or a couple of images rather, because we've talked about the scope, right? How big God is and, and how powerful Jesus is and how able he is. We've talked about what it means to cope, right? So scope to cope and the coping is how Jesus died on the cross for us. And then we look at our need or our call to hope. Now Paul calls us to just keep, continue on in your faith. Whatever you're feeling, bring it to God. He's ready, willing, and able to help us and meet us where we are. But do not give up. Do not give in. And do not forget how loved you are by Jesus. And so I want to show these last couple images because one of the um, things that we talked about or one of the, uh, we think about the scope of creation and the heavens and the earth, that there's a galaxy, again, this is from uh, Louis Giglio, the Whirlpool Galaxy, which is 23.16 million light years away, remember, one light year, 5.88 trillion miles, our Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years. This Whirlpool Galaxy is 23.16 million light years away. So these are just becoming fake numbers, right? They're just so big, it's so hard for us to fathom. And the image I want to show you is an image that is found in the nucleus, the very center of the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's, a, it's an image that um, reveals a lot to us about the scope, got the need to cope, and the reason for our hope. And so as you can see, that right in the very center of it is a cross. Or, or it looks enough like a cross. Is it, is it something where, oh my gosh, that, 
proves everything. No, for us, that, that's a symbol that God, Jesus is bigger and he's redeemer and he's creator and he could do amazing things. And we see this 23.16 million miles away. There's, there's no reason for this to be here just for no reason. But this was here so that we would be able to see it and it'd be a reminder that Jesus is God. And, and I want to show you another picture. We think about a telescope. This is the idea of making something big be able to be seen. Another picture of how we see a microscope idea of that which is small being made visible, being made big. And in verse 17 here, I jumped, I skipped ahead of it. I'm coming back to it now. That in Jesus, all things hold together. And Louis Giglio was sharing how he was uh, going to, excuse me, preach the sermon and how he was talking to a doctor and he said, you need to look into something called laminin. He's like, well, what's laminin? Well, laminin is a base protein and it's, the doctor says it's basically something that serves as rebar, the structure that holds our cells and our bodies together. And if you look at across the whole world and it's, or the, excuse me, the galaxies in a telescope you see across, but if you look at the shape of laminin, that which holds our bodies and our cells together, you see the shape of a cross. Now, for some of you who are watching that, you just say, well, that's, you know, that's not, that doesn't mean anything. And does that mean it proves God's existence? Well, to me, it's a, it's a fingerprint of us seeing the, the fact that Jesus is the creator and he's also the sustainer, the one who holds us all together. And it shows us how from the telescope to the microscope, we have a scope of who he is, but it shows us the picture of how Jesus coped with our sin by dying on the cross for your sin and for mine. And that the cross is the symbol for our hope because he set us free. He made us whole. He died so that wrong things could be made right, so that broken things could be made whole, and so that we may have right relationship with the Father. And so um, if you have your communion elements, I'm going to um, ask you to go ahead and grab those in just a second. And as you do... Um, we're going to have just the, the image of the cross here and keep that up there for a moment. And if you're new to church, you don't know what's going on, it's okay. This is our opportunity for us to remember to take the bread that reminds us of Jesus's body that was battered, broken, bruised, and torn for our sin to make us redeemed and reconciled. And we take the cup that reminds us of his blood that was poured out and was shed, again, to reconcile us to the Father. And so you could go ahead and pull those out now um, if you're watching with us. And I'm going to pray we close our sermon and as we take communion in a couple moments together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you are creator, and that through your creation, we, we learn um, the scope of how big and how mighty and how vast you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are reconciler and redeemer, that through your death on the cross, that we have eternal life because you made a way where there was no way and you brought um, us together with the Father. And that you made right thing, or wrong things right again. And Lord, we also pray for that restoration that comes. As we're waiting for that. We're in the midst of that. And some of us are hurting. God, I pray that we'd feel that restoration. And then lastly, Lord, I pray, or I thank you, Jesus, that you are our liberator. That gives us the reason for our hope and our scope, our cope and our hope. All are funneled into the image of the cross. So we take communion together now. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and feel free to partake of the elements as you feel led.
Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. And thank you for instituting communion so that we can remember you and your sacrifice and your love. Um, often, whenever we meet together, whenever we have communion together, we remember your sacrifice and we remember who we are in you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much again for joining us today. If you need prayer, um, we can. We would love for you to just be able to interact and, and let us know. If you gave your life to the Lord and you would like to walk through that, we would love to walk through that with you as well. Um, we just want to close, as we have been recently, just with the, the prayer from number six. Just may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. You are prayed for, cared for, and loved. If you need anything, let us know. God bless you all. We'll see you next Sunday morning.